Well, thanks for joining us for the second part of the discussion related to the use or not use of uh, dietary drugs. In this part here, we're going to take a look at the underlying physiology of what the drug might do or how the hormones might act as relates to understanding whether or not we need the dietary drugs in order to encourage the weight loss as well as the improvement in overall health. So we're still looking at the issues as it pertains to do we actually need to utilize drugs to encourage weight loss and to encourage improvement in overall health, stemming from conversations that I've had in the past with students, former colleagues, family and friends, looking at are there drugs that can actually mimic the effects that we have from exercise and how can we go about getting changes in our body composition and our body morphology without needing to succumb to all of the various bad diets. So let's talk about that. Warning. The following presentation contains information that might contradict what you have previously heard or believed to be true about how the human body works and contains material that is not suitable for closed-minded individuals. Enjoy. So we left off looking at why do we see differences? Why don't we see differences? When we're looking at the fat loss supplements, the fat burning supplements, when we're looking at the anti-obesity or anti-diabetic drugs that are going to encourage weight loss. What's the underlying reason? What's the underlying rationale for why we might see differences, why we might, why we might not see differences? And part of this goes into understanding one key issue in regards to this whole entire problem. And the one key issue that we have to remember here is that regardless of how simple we want to look at this, the health issues that come about from overfats is highly complex and we cannot attribute it to any type of single factor. And to attribute it to a single factor becomes an oversimplification of what's going on and a misrepresentation of the science that we have. And so what we have to remember is that because we have this, this highly interactive uh, web of influences of factors that come into play. And each one of these influences and each one of these factors are going to interlock and interweave with each of each with each other in such a way that we cannot differentiate where the greatest influence is coming from. And so a lot of times we don't see differences because we're not attributing the correct factors within the studies. One of the things that we took into account when we looked at how do we stop people from being yo-yoers is we looked at what it, what are and what is the familial, social, societal, and environmental influences that we have. And how can, can we eliminate them when we start investigating these issues? And so one of the things that we don't see in a lot of the studies is we don't see this, so, this social factor, this societal factor, when we start looking at, we try to kind of focus solely on either the genetic components of the issue or the hormonal components of the issue without understanding that it's a holistic issue. And that's because we're looking at a physiological response to a behavioral manifestation. And that behavioral manifestation is what we can think about as being health behaviors. That is, what am I willing to do in order to be healthy based off of all the things that I've been taught to do and all those things that have been reinforced for me to do based off of reward and punishment schematics. And what we're hoping to do in all of the intervention programs 
is establish a new lifestyle that is self-selected, self-monitored, and self-sustained for the individual by eliminating as many of the negative reinforcers, the punishment reinforcements, that could possibly be present. Understanding that things like nutrition, things like level of physical activity, or more importantly, the type of exercise that is utilized, is going to impact the hormonal responses that we see, which is going to change the genetic expression that we see, which is going to change the physiological makeup of the body. And by changing the physiological makeup of the body, we're going to, with all of the various behavioral aspects, end up changing morphology, end up changing how the body actually looks and how the body's actually structured. And that's going to lead to a change in overall health. And so when we have all of the endpoints of the studies, looking not at overall health, but looking at weight loss, we miss that complexity. And so one of the things that is not looked at, particularly when we start looking at these lifestyle treatments and these lifestyle interventions, is the fact that any change that I make in either diet or exercise or any other lifestyle behavior that I have has the impact to cause changes in all other behaviors that are associated with lifestyle affecting my overall health. And because that change tends to lead to other changes, we have to take that into account when we start looking at changes that we see in the long term. Particularly if we want to see changes that are going to allow us to see continuous change in the person's body morphology and in the person's overall health. And the key here is overall health. Because even though we might see changes in body mass or in BMI, we may not see an actual change in overall health. And so that's one of the aspects that comes into play. When we start looking at the fat loss supplements, the thermogenic agents, what they are attempting to do is they're attempting to mimic hormones that are naturally occurring within the body that are going to stimulate the breakdown and utilization of lipids, what we refer to as fatty acid oxidation and fatty acid mobilization. These hormones are linked with our fight or flight response hormones, hormones that will sometimes refer to as be uh, sometimes referred to as symptoms sympathetic hormones such as epinephrine or adrenaline and what they tend to do as a effect of the drug and what's referred to as a sympathomimetic effect is cause all of the changes that we see in terms of heart rate in terms of blood pressure all the things that we look at in terms of being an adverse effect on the individual is coming from that aspect of what is that drug doing in terms of its mimic. Even though we think about it as being a supplement, it's really just a drug. And this is where we have to go back and have to kind of rethink about how we look at drugs and supplements. If I'm taking something that's going to hopefully change my metabolism, then I have to think about that substance and that as a drug. And drugs are going to be things that are going to function in such a way as to mimic either a hormone signal or mimic how a hormone might act at a tissue. And so for the the thermogenic agents, for the fat loss supplements, what they're doing is that they're mimicking a sympathomimetic drug, a drug that's going to mimic a sympathetic hormone, a fight or flight hormone, to stimulate fatty acid oxidation, fatty acid mobilization that will hopefully lead to a reduction in fat mass by 
increasing the amount of fat used for energetic purposes. We see very similar changes when we start looking at changes in other key hormones that are going to impact fat metabolism that is associated with exercise, in particular exercise that will stimulate the breakdown of lipids within adipose tissue. By changing hormones known as adipokines, these are hormones that come from the adipose tissue, as well as hormones that are associated with the organs of the intestines and the organs associated with the intestines. These hormones include things like leptin, ghrelin, oxytomodulin, adipocin, but will also include things like insulin and glucagon coming from the pancreas. It will include things like the glucagon-like hormone, the GLP-1, coming from the stomach and from the intestines that will change my set point for my fuel utilization as well as change what is my triggers for eating. That is, how much am I going to eat and when am I going to eat? But it's also going to change how the tissues that are storing nutrients for use later on will go about releasing those nutrients to be used by the body when I am not actively eating. I'm going to have nutrients in circulation. I have nutrients moving around based off of the stuff that's been eaten so that I know I have nutrients available from the foods I'm eating, but I'm not constantly eating. And because I'm not constantly eating, one of the things that we have to start looking at is where am I going to get nutrients for use in between meals? And that's where we get a whole bunch of different types of hormone signals. And those hormone signals are going to change what tissues are being built, what tissues are being broken down in order to meet the nutrient demands of the body based off of what my requirements happen to be at that point in time. And so it's all about hormones. And when we talk about hormones, we talk about the way in which we go about setting up responses. We have to remember a specific physiological principle that comes into play as relates to the need to maintain optimal performance, homeostasis. And the principle that relates to this optimal performance, this homeostasis, is a principle that indicates that the body's going to respond specifically to the triggers that are going to disrupt its optimal level of performance. That principle is referred to as the said principle, specific adaptations to impose demands. And that specific adaptations to impose demands is going to change how I go about using nutrients, how I go about storing nutrients, how I go about responding to hormones, how I go about producing and releasing hormones, all based on what am I specifically asking the body to do? What stresses, what triggers am I imparting on the body? What nutrients are available? What hormones or chemicals that are acting like hormones might be there in order to influence my metabolism? And I'm going to respond in such a way to first attempt to maintain my old level of optimal performance, my old level of homeostasis, but then change that set point based off of what is being demanded of me, what is being demanded of the body at the point in time. One of the things that comes into play within this said principle as relates to the weight loss issues is the fact that we have hormones in circulation. We have hormones being produced by tissues of the body that are expecting specific types of gravitational load, weight, if you want to think about it that way. And they're signals that are coming specifically from bone based off of how much load is being placed in them. And so if I'm going to have weight loss strictly based off of dietary restriction, what ends up happening is that I get these competing signals. And what these competing signals do is that, okay, I've dropped this weight 
I'm no longer restricting my nutrient intake. I start to eat more normally, put quotes around that, but I start eating more foods. And the reason why I start eating more foods in terms of quantity is because I'm getting signals from the tissues that say, hey, we should be loaded, but we're not being loaded because there's less actual weight available on the body. And so when we start looking at these rebound effects that are going to come into play, when we start looking at why is it that the people who lose the most amount of weight end up having the greatest amount of rebound, it's because of these peripheral signals. And most of it is because when we start looking at how are they going about reducing their body mass, they're not doing it through the inclusion of exercise, in particular resistance exercise, to allow for weight bearing on those bones that would be at or above the level of weight bearing with just their body mass. And so that becomes very important. And so one of the things that we start looking at, we start looking at, okay, why do things stop responding? One of the reasons why they stop responding is because of adaptations that take place due to the regularity or irregularity of signals and the need to make sure that I'm able to maintain my optimal level of performance at the cell level, in the tissue level, and within the whole body itself. And so when we start breaking down what's going on, we start looking, okay, how are these hormones going to function? How are these drugs that are going to mimic the hormones going to function? It's going to boil down to these two key issues here. The two key issues that we have to look at is Everything is more complex than just having one single thing be the end-all be-all trigger for either weight loss or weight gain. And the fact that the body is going to respond in such a way that it's going to want to optimally perform and it's going to change the way in which it's regulating itself, its feedback mechanisms, so that it's able to not allow itself to get too far out of its optimal performance, but then change what optimal performance might be so that it is able to survive and adapt to what we're asking it to do. So let's take a look at how some of these hormones are going to function as relates to our nutrient balance issues, our hunger responses, and then we'll take a look specifically at what the GLP-1 drugs will do in terms of overall body performance, optimal performance, and why we see the rebound effects that we see following the termination of the drugs, and how we can go about to better set up a treatment protocol or intervention protocol to maximize the benefit of lifestyle interventions in combination with utilization of the drugs in populations where the drugs would be a benefit. And so when we're looking at hunger response, we're looking at the response to nutrient balance, we got to break it up into two distinct loops. And both loops are going to be regulated by the brain, by the cerebral cortex. And this is where we have to remember that we have to teach eating behaviors, even if we're giving drugs that might minimize my hunger response. And we have peripheral signals, signals coming from the tissues of the body that are going to be an indication of how much fuel is being used for the activities that are taking place on a daily basis. And so when I'm very, very active, and so when I'm very, very active, I'm going to start seeing changes in signals like AMPK, ghrelin, glucagon, which will all increase. And I'll see a reduction in signals like insulin, like leptin, like GLP-1, like PYY, like oxytomodulin. And what those signals are going to do is that they're going to trigger my want to eat. And I'll explain a little bit what's going on neurologically here in a second. And so I start to eat. And as I start to eat, I start getting changes in the way in which the intestines are working. 
they're becoming more active. And the gastrointestinal system starts to become more active and it starts sending a negative feedback loop up to the cerebral cortex. And as it goes back up to the cerebral cortex, it starts to slow down the drive to eat. But at the same time, it starts increasing some hormones that start decreasing other hormones. And what those hormones are going to do is that they're going to trigger my satiation. And so as I start to eat or as I become less active and start utilizing less nutrients, I start seeing a, a swing in my insulin levels, in my oxytomodulin levels, in my GLP-1, where we start seeing increases in those hormones. I start seeing a uh, reduction in my glucagon. I see reduction in my ghrelin. I see an increase in my leptin levels. And as long as I don't have any changes in my sensitivity to those hormones, either I will feel full or I will no longer feel hungry. And all of these things are based off of neurological responses that are going to come from the hypothalamus and head out into the frontal cortex and into the reward centers of the limbic system based off of changes in dopamine signals. If I need to eat, if I uh, have excessive use of nutrients and not a lot of nutrient intake, what I start seeing is I start seeing an increase of ghrelin, a reduction in leptin, a reduction in insulin, an increase of glucagon, a reduction in PYY, a reduction in oxytomodulin, a reduction in GLP-1, and a blocking of the endocannabinoid, the ECS, within the brain. And what that does is that's going to trigger a change in neurotransmitter signals, in particular a change in dopamine signals, which is going to trigger two things. It's going to trigger a drive to get something to eat. It's going to change all of my energy utilization, all of my activity to find food and to eat food. It's going to stimulate what's referred to as the orexic center within the brain. If I am having proper amounts of nutrients in circulation, if I have just finished eating, I get a differential swing. I get a, a different response within the hormones where my PYY and my GLP-1 are going to be high, my leptin levels are going to be high, my insulin levels are going to be high, my ground levels are going to be low, my glucagon levels are going to be low. And what these do is that these trigger an opposite response within the hypothalamus, which is going to trigger the anorexic response, which is going to drive me away from eating and put me into a satiated state, a state where I don't have to. And this is where one of the aspects of that GLP-1, the anti-obesity side of GLP-1 drugs comes into play, is that it's going to act on the hypothalamus to reduce my want to eat. And by reducing my want to eat, what it's going to do is it's going to allow me to use nutrients that have been stored within the body to meet the nutrient demands based off of what is being placed upon me. I get the same type of swings when I start having changes in my activity levels. Now, there becomes a problem with the dieting side of this aspect of how hormones are going to be influenced and how hormones will influence other types of metabolic activities. Where if I have excessive amounts of a negative nutrient balance, regardless of any of the other signals that are coming into play, what ends up happening is that I'll see a very similar swing in hormones that mimic that long response, the nutrient balance response, that's going to want me to try to eat. It's going to drive me to want to eat. It's going to stimulate the orexic responses and inhibit the anorexic responses. But at the same time, it's going to lead to a reduction in my overall metabolic activities. So while I might be losing body mass through excessive 
nutrient restriction and possible tricking, put quotes around that, of some of the receptors within the hypothalamus when I'm taking some of the, the pharmaceuticals, some of the drugs, such as taking the GLP-1 agonist or taking one of the anti-obesity, anti-diabetic drugs, or if I'm taking one of the, the quote-unquote fat burners, which is going to stimulate that anorexic response, the response of don't eat, you have enough nutrients available to you by changing the way in which I have dopamine responses taking place within the brain. I end up having a worse off response in the long term because of the fact that I have caused such a reduction in hormone signaling based off of nutrient intake and excessive amounts of nutrient expenditure that my actual rate of metabolism, the actual rate at which I am utilizing the nutrients for meeting the demands of the body, has slowed down. And this is one of the ways in which we'll start seeing rebound effects coming into play if I have excessive nutrient restriction without additional signals coming into play. Where if I'm looking at trying to do, or if I'm looking at trying to do weight loss and health and health improvements for the long term, I don't want to take any type of drug. I don't want to do anything that's going to cause excessive nutrient restrictions, even in the short term, because what it's going to do is it's going to drastically impact what my long-term benefits might be. And so if I am looking at this in terms of a way to make sure that I am obtaining the greatest amount of benefit that I can get, what I want to do is I want to make sure that my nutrient utilization is in excess of my nutrient intake, but is not so out of balance that I have a drastic reduction in my overall metabolic rates that take place within the body. This is where everybody talks about the caloric balance, but the problem is that the caloric balance is misleading. Because calories don't weigh anything, and since calories don't weigh anything, they can't add to our body mass. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to equate my overall metabolic rates based off of energy expenditure to what my nutrient utilization versus nutrient intake might be. And what I want to try to do is I want to try to maximize the building of fat-free mass, bone, muscle, organ, while reducing the amount of fat mass, adipose mass. By changing lifestyle, by increasing physical activity, in particular exercise style physical activity, and in particular resistance training physical activity, and resistance training in such a way that's going to try to stimulate muscle growth, increasing nutrients in some classes of the macronutrients. This is where having slightly higher protein intake during periods of weight loss becomes beneficial because it's going to cause swings within my metabolism that will offset swings that we might see with changes in hormones. But what's also going to do is also going to allow for hormone changes due to that loop of feeding versus satiation to allow me to stay full for longer periods of time. But the overall impact that we have so far based off of changes in physical activity and changes in diet is going to be a swing in how the hormones are going to impact my overall metabolic rates. That is how much chemistry my body is going to do to be able to maintain the optimal level of performance that it's set to meet, plus meet whatever new challenges that I put forth. What else am I asking the body to be able to do during these times of restrictions? And this is where, when we start looking at the interventions, The interventions that show greatest benefit are the interventions 
that combine any type of pharmacological agent, any type of drug or supplement with physical activity, in particular exercise, while minimizing the total amount of nutrient balance deficit that is taking place acutely, that is at the time of intervention or on a day-to-day basis. And so when we start looking at the importance of how these hormones are going to function, what we have to start doing is we have to start saying, okay, we understand what the hormones are going to do under normal conditions. And under normal conditions, we'll take a look specifically at the GLP-1 hormone because that's what's going to indicate what the drugs should be doing if they're actual true GLP-1 mimics. And so what the GLP-1 is going to do is that we see GLP-1 increase after meals and it has a very short window of pulse. That means it has a very short time in which it's released. And it's only in circulation for very short periods of time. The evidence that we have shows that it's somewhere in the neighborhood of about two to three minutes worth of pulsing with a very short window of of activity, usually less than an hour, in which what it's going to do is within the brain, it's going to regulate continuation of eating my food intake. By regulating food intake long term, it can impact my overall weight. Now, when we start looking at this in terms of the anti-diabetic condition, which is where the GLP-1 drug comes from, most of the other factors that we look at in terms of its actions is all about either blocking glucagon's actions or by increasing the ability for insulin to do what insulin needs to do. And so what we see in terms of activity of GLP-1 and thus the GLP-1 drugs is that we'll see at the liver, we'll see a reduction in responsiveness to glucagon. And by reducing the responsiveness to glucagon, we're going to see a reduction in glucose production. We'll also see a reduction in uh, freeing of lipids. Because of its actions in terms of the gastrointestinal functions, we will see a reduction in the rate at which materials are moving through the intestines, which includes the stomach. And so those two factors there are going to reduce the total amount of nutrients that we see in circulation and allow for better utilization of the nutrients that are available. Now, going hand in hand with its actions in terms of insulin sensitivity and responsiveness at the tissues, it's going to have a protective effect on the pancreas. And it's going to have a protective effect on the pancreas in terms of its ability to correctly secrete and sense the need to secrete insulin and glucagon, which is very important because diabetics have very poor glucose sensing within the pancreas, which leads to a lot of the type 2 diabetes issues that we see long term. Now, in the tissues that are sensitive to insulin, such as skeletal muscle and adipose tissue, we already talked about the liver, at skeletal muscle and at adipose tissues, it increases the sensitivity to insulin, but it also changes leptin responsiveness and leptin sensitivity, which is going to allow for at the adipose tissue an increased amount of fat mobilization, what we call scientifically lipolysis, but it's going to block the production of fat, what we call scientifically lipogenesis, as long as fructose intake does not become excessive. At the skeletal muscles, it's going to help regulate 
insulin responsiveness and glucose uptake, clearing of glucose and allowing glucose to go into the muscles and be used by the muscles. And because it's changing the way in which fat mass and fat tissues are functioning, change the way in which the liver and the liver cells are functioning, change the way in which skeletal muscle is functioning, it's going to have a protective effect on the body by reducing global inflammation. That reduction in global inflammation leads to a protective effect on tissues that are susceptible to chronic inflammation responses and accumulation of reactive oxidative species, ROSs, which means, which means GLP-1 has the potential to have a neuroprotective effect, a cardioprotective effect, a hepatic protective effect, and a renal protective effect. It has a protective effect on the brain, on the heart, on the liver, on the kidneys, as well as other cells that are susceptible to high amounts of inflammation associated with diabetic conditions, such as what we see in the retina of the eyes, or in small blood vessel areas, such as in the digits of the foot, the toes, or the digits of the hand, the fingers. And so that's what GLP-1 should be doing in terms of its actions naturally. And so what do we see from the drugs? What do we see from the drugs the GLP-1 mimics? Well, we see a reduction in inflammation. We see an improvement in insulin sensitivity. We see an improvement in glucose clearing. We see an improvement in uh, cardiovascular functions. We see a reduction in clotting. We see an improvement in uh, fat mass. We see a reduction in fat mass. We see a reduction in body mass. We see normalization of hepatic functions. But we don't see these changes independent of the changes that are associated with diet, exercise, or diet and exercise. And so even though GLP 1 provides these benefits. They're not benefits that come without the added effect of diet and exercise. Now, because we naturally release these in very small amounts, in very short durations, and because the drug tends to have a very short window of activity, utilization of the drugs to mimic it may have an impact on the GLP reception once the drug has stopped and in individuals that do not need any of the GLP activities because they are normal health due to not being compromised by overfatness, which means that for people who are overfat with metabolic issues, people who are overfat and have issues due to overfatness, what people refer to as obesity-related issues, over-fatness health issues. The use of the anti-diabetic, anti-obesity medicines, the GLP-1 agonists which have become popular, there is benefit for them from the application of those. But for the vast majority of individuals, they may actually be creating more harm for themselves in the long term for a short-term benefit of some weight loss. And part of this is because we tend to poorly equate body weight with overall health. And once again, it goes back to that whole issue of complexity and the fact that we try to oversimplify the ideas of what is health and what is healthy. And so we're hearing about all of these amazing results that we get from the Ozempic and the Wagovi and the 
this and of that and of this fat loss supplement and of that fat loss supplement. But none of them are being done independent of other lifestyle changes. And what we have to remember is, is that we end up seeing drastic rebounds coming into play for individuals following termination. And the reason for that is because we have changed the physiological responses. And because we've changed the physiological responses, we've changed the way in which the receptors for the hormones are functioning. And by changing the way in which we have the receptors functioning within the hormones, we change the feedback loops. And by changing the feedback loops, if we do not change the feedback loops, particularly for feeding regulation and nutrient balance, based off of hormone changes for that stimulate tissue growth, we end up disrupting normal feedback mechanisms, regulating eating behaviors and nutrient balance behaviors. And this becomes even more complex when we start looking at other hormones, such as the ECS, the endocannabinoid pathways, where people who are overfat, susceptible to overfat, or people who have eating disorder issues, have susceptibility to and sensitivity to changes in the ECS that are not modified by these drugs. They are modified by modification of other hormones associated with body mass changes and metabolic changes, in particular the hormones that are going to help regulate our basal metabolic rates, such as leptin, ghrelin, adiponectin, insulin, glucagon, and growth hormone, with secondary regulations of basal metabolic rate with our thyroid hormones. Those hormones tend to help regulate our endocannabinoidal system more than the GLP pathway, which is what this quote-unquote new weight loss meds are going to mimic. And so why do we see benefits while taking it? It's because we're changing those feedback loops. And by changing those feedback loops, we reestablish what is our optimal performance level. But the problem is, is that it's only done while we're seeing that trigger, while seeing that stimulus. And once that stimulus goes away, we will go back to what was our original optimal level of performance. What was our optimal level of body mass? What was our optimal level of health? And this is where we have to start, once again, looking at the idea of weight loss, not as what's the scale say, but what is my overall health and how can I holistically change my behaviors so that what I'm going to be doing is self-selected, self-monitored, self-motivated, and not coercive in nature. So we have to take the news stories that we're hearing about all of these new drugs kind of with a grain of salt. And there are a number of side effects that we see from these drugs based off of their peripheral functions within the gastrointestinal system, within the liver, within the muscles that will and do lead to some gastrointestinal distress, some cardiometabolic distress that may actually interfere with one's overall desire to be healthy. Well, thanks for listening to part one and part two of the discussion on do we need to take the weight loss drugs or can we go about doing weight loss without needing those drugs? Hopefully we raise some points of interest for you. And if there are other points of interest that you'd like us to talk about, please make sure you drop it off in the comments. We'd love to hear from you. If you like what we're putting out there, please make sure you give us a a big thumbs up and a big like. If you haven't subscribed, please make sure you go ahead and subscribe. It helps us with all the metrics, along with leaving us some comments. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching if you're on the, on the YouTube. 
Thanks for listening. If you're on the, with the podcasts, we appreciate you tuning in.